90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hello, Shannon. How are you doing? Wonderful, John. How are you doing this week? Oh, not too bad. It's uh, warming up a little bit. <laughs> eh, not too sunny, but I'll take it. Uh, yeah, we have severe weather threats all week, so it's springtime in Oklahoma here, <laughs> which is par for the course because I'm getting ready to wrap up my last field trip. And as you remember, lots of my other field trips were canceled for snow, so I'm sure it'll do something crazy like that this weekend. Yeah, the weather and your field trips really don't seem to get along, and <laughs> having students in the field during a severe thunderstorm is definitely something you want to avoid. Uh, it's true. I feel qualified to tell them to get their butts in the van and we're getting out of there. So, <laughs> so we'll see how this weekend shapes up for us. But have you done anything exciting? I've been trying to wrap up a few projects here and there and uh, some of the things that we talked about last week. But I did start building a Tesla coil kit this week. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> okay, just just to have one around the house. <laughs> Yeah, this one, it uh, was a Kickstarter, and you can plug it into your computer through a fiber optic cable, of course, and send it MIDI, so it modulates the coil based on music that you're sending it, so you can kind of play music with sparks. <laughs> Doesn't that just make it a theremin? Well, this would this could kill you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this one isn't big enough to... This one isn't big enough to kill you, but it would definitely cause a burn if you touched it. And you're not you're not modulating the music with your body like a theremin. Yeah, it's playing yeah. it. But uh, that sounds uh, actually pretty cool, though. Yeah, I mean, we could definitely play the Star Wars theme with it. Or Star Trek. <laughs> sorry. Oh, we could yeah. definitely play the we could definitely play the Star Trek theme with it. I'm gonna forgive that slight, but you better watch yourself, okay? <laughs> I, I am a Trekkie. Out. Yeah. <laughs> well. So, on that note, <laughs> what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think uh, Tide would be something pretty interesting to talk about. Kind of the, the working title I had in the notes was Surf's Up, Dude. <laughs> awesome. Um, tides are this weird thing that you sort of always know about, and being in landlocked Oklahoma, we don't think a lot about them here, but they still affect us, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only do you have ocean tides, but we also have solid earth tides, which we'll talk about, and they can be surprisingly large, uh, uh, much larger than you would think at first intuition. Yes, and that's sort of the tides that I'm interested in, since I'm not anywhere near the ocean, but there's a lot of um, a lot of effects that tides can have on the solid earth, on the ocean, on rocks, and everything. Yeah, and so I guess we should probably start with where tides come from. Yes. All right, so tides are basically just the gravitational interaction of, in our case, the sun-moon-earth system. Uh, so those are the biggest players for us, but really everything makes a tiny difference. It's just <laughs> too small to concern us generally. <laughs> right, exactly. In physics and every other science, we make all these assumptions. And so that's our assumption when we're trying to talk about tides is that that's all that affects us but you know this happens on other planets as well right i mean other planets have lots of moons in their systems and they can have really large tides and effects on all those moons and the planets itself as well oh yeah and i mean kind of the key thing to remember through this whole discussion we've talked a little bit about gravity in the past 
And the thing is to remember that it varies linearly with mass. So if you make something twice as heavy, the gravitational attraction becomes twice as strong. But with the inverse square of displacement, so if you put something twice as far away, gravity's four times weaker. Right. So exactly. that's really important to remember <laughs> for all of this discussion, why we can say that the sun is much less of a tidal effect on us than the moon, even though it weighs so much more than the moon. It's because it's so far away. Right. And you throw Mercury and everything else that's in between us and the sun doesn't make much of a difference at all either. The moon is our big gravity response, especially when we're talking about the ocean tides. Right. And I will say in researching some for this show, tides, I knew they were complicated, but then <laughs> they're was a whole nother level of complexity on top of that. (laughs) Um, As I looked over the show notes, I realized that I did not realize the level of complexity either. I mean, there are a lot of physical things going on besides just us lining up and creating, you know, big oceans and little oceans. Yeah, and so I'm going to put some links in the notes for the people that want to dive in really deep. There's one great article that has a really nice mathematical analysis of all the different tidal modes, and uh, it's really great if you want to go through it, but equations don't make for really good radio. (laughs) Uh, No, they don't, even though I do have my whiteboard out here just so I can can keep up, but um, (laughs) yes, you're correct. Um, Not the most exciting radio program (laughs) but that's okay we can we can talk through some of these equations and what they mean absolutely and so i guess kind of first just the ocean tides the things that everybody's familiar with even though if you're landlocked uh, like in oklahoma there maybe isn't quite relevant for you uh, (laughs) immediately but they're actually really important for things like commerce you know when ships can get into and out of ports uh, safety And really, even for some geologic processes, and this is where I'm kind of going to defer to you a little bit on the (laughs) geologic processes for this. Uh, That's okay. I'll defer to you for all the equations. Um, (laughs) Right. So you talk about for safety as well as all this cool geological stuff. And um, a lot of my research actually takes place in Scotland. And the tides have a big impact on how we sample our rocks, actually. It's something I didn't really think about because I hadn't been, you know, involved in sampling along a coastal area. But the tides in Scotland are pretty large. And so it's the difference between being able to access a rock and sample it and do it in a timely manner before the tide comes in. And that's a safety (laughs) issue, too. But as well as, you know, trying to get the maximum sampling time, if you're there at the wrong time of day and you didn't plan correctly... Well, you're just kind of out of luck. Yeah. And, I mean, tides can even be important in the depositional processes that make the rock that you want to study. Oh, exactly. Um, so in geology, you know, we're always looking at different strata and stuff. And so in the terms of tidal strata, because, you know, tides are coming in, tides are going out, and they're always depositing um, rocks in the ocean. And these are called rhythmites which I think is a really cool word that sort of explains what they are in general, right? Yeah, and it says, uh, when I was reading about these a little bit before we started recording, that they can even record things a short time scale as diurnal tides. Yes, 
Yes, they can. Um, a lot of geologists, especially that work on quaternary stuff, so stuff that's taking place right now, if you remember your geologic time scale, um, you can dig big trenches and you can see these diurnal depositional, it just little tiny, tiny, small scale laminae that alternate and you can tell when tides in, tides out, ebb tidal, flood tidal. And it tells a lot about how the overall Earth processes are working just in this one little bitty area. That's really fascinating that you can see that fine of detail. And uh, it seems like I'm sure several grad students have lamented their Friday nights counting these <laughs> these layers. That's right. So, like, the, the thought of rhythmites to me is very uh, romantic, but the <laughs> factualness of sitting down to actually have to count these different layers and figure out, you know, what you're recording is, yes, tiresome, to say the least. But it's really cool because this doesn't just happen in the quaternary. I mean, we have tidal rhythmites that are, you know that have been cemented into rocks and you can still tell tidal influences from, you know, way back in the geologic period, a paper that I read before we started recording too, was looking at the upper Proterozoic. So 650 to 800 million years ago in South Australia. Wow. Yes. And so these tidal rhythmites are sort of like little laminated siltstones and sandstones and they've recorded what the tides look like before there were plants on Earth. That's unbelievable to me. <laughs> yeah, the fact that we know an incredible amount about the daily tides. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, as I'm sure that we will talk about in future shows as the show goes on, you know, the moon hasn't always been the same distance that it is from us today. And that effect, just like you talked about how gravity affects us, as it gets further away, you can sometimes see the stuff recorded in these tidal rhythmites about how the tides have changed over geologic time based on how far away the moon is. Yeah, we'll touch on that at the very end, but I think we'll just kind of use that as a teaser for maybe a future show if people <laughs> want to hear about that. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's really cool because we look back at all these rocks to try to look at paleoclimate pretty frequently, but I think tidal stuff because you know it can be cumbersome to try to figure out these small scale things you know gets overlooked a little bit but it's a really cool um record of what tides have been like over time yeah and so we've used a few terms that i think we should probably define and i the easiest way to do that is just to go through what the tidal cycle looks like in the ocean so you get what's called a flood tide which is where water's coming into your location, mm -hmm. so the water level is rising. And then when it reaches peak, reaches its peak, that's called high tide, obviously. Right. And so then you get an ebb tide where the water starts flowing back out until you get to low tide. Low tide. And right. when that tidal stream, the current of water that is you know, moving volume in or out, stops for a, a very brief moment in this process of reversing, that's called a slack tide. Okay. And those are all very familiar words for anyone that's been to the ocean. So you could tell you're standing out there, tide starts moving further and further. You got to move your beach chair back. You got to change your, your position of your beer. <laughs> and then <laughs> as time goes on, you know, it, it gets to a maximum point and then tide goes out again. Yeah. And that's your ebb tide. Yeah. And so these 
You know, we said initially that tides are really complicated, and it depends on all kinds of things. And it turns out uh, we've been thinking about tides and saying that they're probably caused by the moon since 150 B.C., Okay, so that's when we started to realize that the moon had this gravitational effect on us, which is right. really a time when a lot of these, as we talked about on our sort of how do you weigh a planet show, this is when a lot of these ideas were really being sort of fleshed out for the first time. Yeah, and so a lot of the great minds worked on this. I mean, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, Laplace, uh, even Kelvin trying to figure out what all influences the tide. And it turns out the answer is pretty much everything. <laughs> As the case when you're talking about any sort of gravity, when, whenever gravity is in the equation, I feel like the complexities are enormous, really. Like you can boil it down to some assumptions, but it's something well, we don't understand. Well, yeah, and even so things like lunar position, of course, but things like where you are, the coastline geometry and the bathymetry of that area. Right, exactly. Really affect it. And there's a link that I'm going to put in the show notes to this really neat tide visualization from a blog called Calculated Images, which mm -hmm. is a really great place to go check out some cool yes. data-driven things. And it shows you what the tide uh, in an ideal model tide looks like worldwide. And you can see it's not just this bulge that follows the moon around uh, like we get kind of in the Geology 101 picture. It's this right. really complex series of interactions. And I don't, do you have that uh, image up? Uh, yes, I have it up right here. This I will say this was sort of a rabbit hole of a blog for me because it's pretty cool <laughs> in general. But so... yeah. So definitely check that. And if you look at the edge, like uh, the tip of South America or around Australia, once again, great radio for those of you watching us uh, through your headphones, <laughs> you can see these really high amplitude tide signals uh, from getting close to the shore and then really complicated things based on the coastline geometry, especially right around the tip of South America. Right, exactly. Along that, um, along that area, you have some very sort of deep channelization that occurs and it creates these really high amplitude tides i mean they're famous you know worldwide how large these tides can get along that area so you're right it's not just this moon thing but you have a whole lot going on with just the geometry um and the geology that's occurring right along the ocean continent boundary yeah and so you know we can kind of think of tides having this semi-diurnal or diurnal signal. And that can be affected by, once again, uh, quite a few things. And this is going to sound like, for a very brief period of time, our show that we talked about different time scales, because we're going to end up getting into <laughs> lunar days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so if your candle on the moon is calibrated correctly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. So what does a lunar day have to do with affecting our tides? All right, so what we're going to be interested in is the – so we're interested in how often the moon passes overhead, right? Because that's right. when the moon is going to be directly above us and we're going to have the most influence from it at our location. Right. But it turns out the moon orbits in the same direction that the Earth spins. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a little bit longer than 24 hours between when the moon is directly overhead. And in fact, the uh, the lunar half day is what's useful to talk about when we're – thinking about tides 
and it's 12 hours, 25.2 minutes on average. Okay, so just a little bit of an offset from our calculated day time. Yeah, and they actually made some really nice devices called Tide Clocks, and you can still find them, uh, big, huge podiums at uh, ports and that kind of thing, that work on these, like, 24-hour, 50-ish minute days right? for high tide and low tide. Uh, so that's why these things appear to us to drift from morning into the night and that kind of thing. Um, but it's just because the moon orbits in the same direction that we spin. And this is called the M2 tide component, which is the principal lunar semi-diurnal. <laughs> that's, that, that's the largest effect that we have. If you're going to do a simple model, that is the only one you need to include. Which is just simply where the moon is with respect to you. Right. And so you can get more complicated signals. There are things like mixed tide where you've got, uh, so a lower high water and a higher high water mark. <laughs> and, uh, it can get a little brain bending. Yeah, we sure, we sure love to categorize every little component that we can find about <laughs> about this. But this was really important. I mean not just for a whole earth science study, but before the internet, before you could check tide, you know, tide levels anywhere in the world, this is how they depended on finding out when the tides were going to be in or out in certain areas. So it's kind of a big deal to understand it economically. Yeah. And so, I mean, that simple picture does pretty good for maybe a day or two. But as you start looking at longer time series of data, you notice that there's some other really low-frequency components. And after and a while, that starts to mess it up since this lunar day is different, right? Well, there's that. And then just the, the high tide and low tide marks actually themselves will change in a cycle that is two weeks long. So you okay. get kind of amplitude modulation of this roughly sine wave. Okay. And you should definitely check out some tide gauge data. We'll have a link in the show notes to somewhere where you can look at a plot of this. But if you look over weeks to months, you'll see this kind of, like I said, amplitude modulation. And this is where one of the more confusing categorizations that we have <laughs> comes in. <laughs> yeah, this is an awful choice of semantics to describe this, but... Well, in fact, NOAA has an entire ocean service page dedicated <laughs> to this. <laughs> oh, the God. spring and neap tides. So neap tide is fine, but spring tide has nothing to do with the season of spring, right? Absolutely not. We get spring tides year round. And the origin of this, what made them name it spring tide, was it is springing up. It is increasing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> poor choice, though. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because I've had many a student miss this on a test because they just assume it's this seasonal phenomenon. <laughs> so, yes. So spring tides are when the daily amplitude, so the high to low tide difference, is larger than normal. And the neap tides are when it's smaller. And what this actually results from is if we throw the sun into the equation and say, now we're going to consider its gravitational contribution. Well, now we have to worry about the earth, moon, sun alignment. 
Right, because the sun is so massive, even though it is so far away, its gravity is still obviously going to have an effect on our tides. Yeah, and so, you know, we have the big bulge uh, on the ocean surface that follows the moon around. There's a little bulge that follows the sun around, and these bulges can (laughs) superimpose on each other in constructive or destructive ways. Exactly. All right. So you get some harmonic interference or not, and you modulate the amplitude of your normal everyday tides which is also a poor choice of words <laughs> yeah so i mean it's almost like a, a beat beating effect right exactly uh, of the two frequencies and so what what's going on is when the moon is between uh, the earth and the sun so it would be a new moon mm-hmm. we have spring tides spring tides because their collective gravity is pulling even more making the tides even larger Right. And then we're, when we're at the half moons, which uh, is seven days after, so seven days after right. the full moon or seven days after the new moon, we're at the half moon, and that is when we have neap tides. Okay. Because then you have not the collective gravity. They're interfering with each other. Right. They're, they're pretty much 90 degrees out. Right. Uh, and this... I love some of the words that astronomers come up with. and <laughs> This is my favorite. <laughs> this is definitely, I mean, we almost need a new segment, Word of the Week now. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt to say this one. I'm glad you put this in the notes and not me. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to butcher this. Uh, it is spelled S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Sizgy? Did you look up how to say it? And I did, but I can't read IPA. Okay. <laughs> so. But th- this thing this, is even cooler. <laughs> yeah. So this word just means any alignment of celestial bodies. So when the <laughs> earth and the moon and the sun form a line, that is a line of syzygy. <laughs> I really hope someone leaves us an audio comment on how to say this word. Yes, if you know how to say it, please do. Yes, because uh, I want to. I'm going to use it as much as I possibly can. So this is where we bring in, it kind of goes with the complications that arise when we add in all these other celestial bodies whose gravities are exerting a pull on us too, right? Yeah, I mean, this is just one of the complications. And <laughs> oh man, if you if you start adding in things like the moon is not always equidistant from us. <laughs> Uh, so you actually can see another superimposed signal that is from the lunar distance changing, which happens every seven and a half lunations <laughs> or total moon orbits. Okay. <laughs> um, Once again, and, you know, word of the week, part two, lunations. Uh, right, lunations. Um, okay. Wow. I didn't realize that you could see that in the tides. That seems like a really small effect, but why is it at a different distance from us? Does this have to do with the geoid? You know I love the geoid. <laughs> <laughs> this is just from the fact that we're not dealing with purely circular orbits. Are you telling me that all our assumptions are not correct? <laughs> well, the way we've always drawn orbits from you know elementary school when you make the nice little models, uh, you, you know... <laughs> okay, I'll try to come to grips with this. You know, meteorologists love their assumptions, so this is hard for me, but... <laughs> okay. Well, all right, so... And uh, let's see, yeah, so I'm going to put a link in where you can go down all kinds of wiki holes about that. Uh, the last thing <laughs> I 
kind of want to say about tides and water is that uh, you can also get tides on large lakes. Yes. Yes, you can. You can even see tidal changes in groundwater as well. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that a lot of times in large lakes, things like seshes end up washing out the tidal signal because we're looking at inches uh, right. of tidal signal in some of these lakes. And seshes, uh, it's a whole nother thing that we should talk about at some point because there's <laughs> some really cool data sets out there from lake seshes. So what are they? Uh, this is just kind of the sloshing of the entire body of water. <laughs> okay. And uh, so if you like your uh, harmonic oscillator problems, which we're I actually going to talk about later, uh, it's something that you want to look into. Oh, that's really cool. And, so, and oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, the same thing. Um, I found out about this in a class, and they talked about when you measure groundwater measurements, you have to make sure that you take out tidal differences because it can be inches, many inches, that the tides, particularly spring and neap tides, have affecting on groundwater levels in certain areas, which I just found fascinating. So that's a really large body of water in itself, even though it's locked up in the rocks, that tides also have an effect on. Yeah. And also, you said something about inches of difference there. So that kind of makes me wonder, well, how do we measure all of these things? Me being the instrumentation nut that I am. (laughs) See, I just care about the 800 million euro tides that are, you know, in rock. So I can measure them with a ruler. But how are you going to do this (laughs) with water? (laughs) Well, the simplest way, you know, is uh, to, at low tide, run into your canal or whatever (laughs) and either put a pole there or paint on the wall and then sit there with your notebook and a stopwatch and take recordings. And that is how it was done initially. (laughs) I like to imagine um, like ancient Greeks, graduate students doing this as well. (laughs) (laughs) Like in my mind, that's just, it's the perfect thing that you would have a grad student do even, you know, in 150 BC, I feel like. (laughs) Yes, okay, grad so that... students have been manual data loggers for many years. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And so, you know, like in places like Scotland, you see these markings a lot. I mean, these can be, this can be the difference of, you know, getting your boat into a harbor and not even coming close. These tides can vary so greatly in some areas. Oh, yeah, and so after, after we measured it with, you know, the very manual way, and technology came forward a little bit, we went to something that's going to sound familiar to seismologists of the paper strip chart recorder. Okay. And this system was beautifully simple. It was a float in a tube that's called a stilling well that would go down into the water. And the float had a weight on the bottom to make sure, you know, it stayed pulled taut on the string uh, that attached it through a pulley to the arm on the paper chart recorder. And so, once again, you'd have your grad students go out there once a day and pull these paper charts, Mm -hmm. and you could tell the tide fluctuations based on the amplitude that was recorded on the charts. Yeah, and just having that stilling well is kind of like, you know, a really simple low-pass filter. Right. Uh, Because we don't care about waves and, you know, boats going by and that kind of thing. Right, exactly. Uh, So, there are some more modern ways to do this. (laughs) Uh, okay. We can just simply put a pressure gauge down, and is the 
amount of water in the column goes up and down. We see a difference in pressure. That's pretty cool. Uh, then there is this thing called a bubbler pressure measurement. So which, I didn't know what this was. This sounds exciting, though. <laughs> it is. It's uh, it's wonderfully simple, actually. So you take a compressed gas, like you know, compressed air. Air compressors are easy, and you meter it at some constant flow rate, so X liters per minute. It goes down a tube and comes out of a bubbler at you know the bottom of your pole that's submerged in the ocean. And the pressure that is in the airline ah. is equal to the pressure of the overlying water. Ah. <laughs> so no moving parts, no sensor underwater to get corroded. That's just a pressure neat. gauge on the surface in the instrumentation shack and just a tube running down. That seems beautifully simple. It is. And they turn out to be really reliable. In fact, they often install bubblers and pressure gauges side by side so that when one fails, they still have the other. Oh, wow. Okay. So these are still used. These are still used. Absolutely. Um, these next two, kind of the last two that I found, are kind of the new kids on the block and not really in wide use yet, I would say. Uh, and those are acoustic and radar gauges. See, I'm pretty excited about this radar gauge. So are these like under the water? Or are they near the surface of the water? How are we, what are we measuring here with these two? Okay, well, these sit on the edge of the pier. Okay. And they measure time of flight from the sensor down to the water. The signal reflects off the water back up to the sensor. Uh, so the acoustic is exactly what you would think of two-way travel time seismically. Yeah. Seismic, uh, yeah. And the radar is basically just, I don't know if they use continuous wave or pulse or exactly how they do it. Yeah. Uh, well, if it's continuous wave, it'd have to be frequency modulated. But anyway, they can do some kind of a radar echo process and get the same thing as the acoustics. I would imagine that radar would, of these, turn out to be more reliable because you don't have to worry about what happens when it's really windy. Uh, right. You don't have to worry about the speed of sound varying in air with temperature, which, which as we've talked about before, it does. <laughs> yes, and we know that could be a big deal. Um, so it seems like those two would sort of have some problems with, you know, waves and traffic and just normal things floating on the water. You know, if you have a duck that lands underneath your <laughs> your radar <laughs> gauge, like it seems like that has more, would need more filtering of the data. Yeah, and I think the way that they would probably approach this is with acoustic and radar data, we're used to collecting uh, thousands to millions of data yeah, points per second. Yeah. And you're looking at a phenomena that is varying over hours. So I imagine you do some kind of averaging low-pass filtering, something like that. Get rid like of that. all your ducks, and then you're good. Okay. Right, yeah, you want to filter out the ducks. <laughs> On so many levels. Um, so these tidal gauges and everything, I mean, I assume there's some kind of, is there some kind of standard? I know I've looked at the NOAA website and there's a lot on there about, you know, what we do here in the U.S., but. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> datums are always fun. And there are several. There are conversions between them, whether you're measuring tidal height relative to you know some kind of mean height at that location, whether you're measuring to surface height of the gauge, whether it's to geoid height. Uh, oh. it, it can get ugly, uh, but it's a solved problem. It's okay. not quite as bad as time. <laughs> so, 
I don't think anything could be as bad as that. But <laughs> okay, just so I know, it just makes me sleep better at night when I know that we're all on the same datum page. Well, and one really cool thing, uh, a long time ago, I did a blog post on this. You can actually look at tide gauges, and when there is a large earthquake, and you know, you're know you watching the waves uh, go out from this earthquake, even if it's not tsunamogenic, you, know, you still have these very small variations that go out from it. You can actually see the frequency dispersion in the tide gauges beautifully. No uh, kidding. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. That's a really so. If all your seismometers failed, you could still use that to triangulate the earthquake. <laughs> uh, possibly. Well, actually, I think I used buoy data, but the same principle. Uh, right. I was looking no, at ocean that's height. really neat. Okay, that's that's cool. That's cool. One of those things that gets yeah. in the way of measuring the tides too. Thanks. Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, <laughs> one person's noise that they want to filter out is the other person's signal. And that's so much the case. There have been some seismology talks I've been to where they're trying to do, you know, like noise-based tomography. And, okay, so the first thing we did is we cut out all segments of our data that contained earthquakes. (laughs) And And gave them to some people down the hall, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, and then there are other people that are saying, okay, there's all this low-frequency noise that I don't care about, so I filter that out, and here's the earthquake. It's the exact same data. It's That's wonderful. That's so great. It's the same thing with paleomagnetism because if a rock gets struck by lightning, it creates all kinds of weird magnetic stuff. But in contrast, you can actually work out the voltage of a lightning bolt based on this paleomagnetic noise. I did a project on that once. It was kind of cool. So let's see, those are um, oh, uh, fulgurites. Is that the right name? Yes. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Yes. <laughs> so lightning struck, yes, lightning struck little pieces of sand. And you can actually back calculate out measuring their magnetism now, the voltage of the lightning that was required to create the fulgurite. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure we can talk about that later, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, we should go back. So I think that uh, that probably do it for ocean tide and water tides. But let's talk kind of quickly about the solid earth tide because I know this is the one that you were excited about. I am. I think this is the coolest thing. Ever since I learned about it, I mean, a long time ago, I think this is really crazy. And I mean, it's the same thing as an ocean tide, but we're not actually talking about moving the water. We're talking about moving the solid part of the planet instead. Yeah. And so actually kind of the weird thing about this system is if you do the analysis, uh, the center of mass of the Earth-Moon system is actually inside the Earth. Mm. Uh, okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Turned out not to be super relevant, but it's just an interesting factoid that I discovered while playing with this. I would have figured it would have been close, but I don't think I would have realized it was actually in the Earth. So, mm. nice. Yeah. And so since the tides affect the whole Earth, our rigid crust that we think is so firm, it... <laughs> It's it's too small. It doesn't matter scale-wise. Right, exactly. Because we're talking, you know, lithosphere in the over 6,000 kilometers is the radius of the Earth, and lithosphere is, you know, tiny, 100-ish. So. Right. So if you, ha- if you have the squishy Earth now right. and mm-hmm. the peanut moon going around. Peanut butter is how I like to talk about it to my students, yes. Oh, there you go, yeah. So if you have the peanut butter Earth uh-huh. uh, with the nice Reese's chocolate crust on the outside That's and right. the moon going around. Mm-hmm. It turns out the surface of the Earth for large solid Earth displacements uh, is about 55 centimeters. That's a lot. Yeah. 
mean, that's that is a considerable amount. That's totally measurable with your feet, <laughs> as well as you know GPS, right? I'm assuming people do a lot of research on this. Yeah, and once again, the same vein of well, some people signals other people's noise. Right? If you're trying to do very nice continuous GPS measurements, this can really mess with you, and uh, you yeah. have to try to back it out. On the other hand, if you're interested in solid earth tides, GPS is a great instrument. Oh, right. Because, I mean, 55-centimeter displacement, that's unbelievable. This goes back to the time scale sort of thing that we talk about. You know, um, the same physics that takes place in the atmosphere takes place in rocks. It's just on a different time scale. So these rocks are acting like a fluid just like the ocean does in response to this gravitational pull. Yeah, and so there is, you know, some differences in the lag, uh, the phase lag between these two signals, but it's not not too much to worry about right now. The biggest thing is uh, when I was doing some research on this, turns out some of the really large particle accelerators, you know, like the Large Hadron Collider, CERN and everything, mm -hmm. they actually have to compensate for their deformation due to solid Earth tide, changing the path length in the ring. No kidding. Yes. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so there's an article... Because it's so big, because the rings are so big. So you'd well, have the big placement the... over the length of it, right? Well, yeah, and the ring's big, and the solid earth tide's large, so you're actually right. changing <gasps> the diameter slightly, changing the path that all of your little particles have to travel, that you're accelerating them. That's awesome. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm going to post an article on this in the show notes that's from Slack, so the Stanford Linear Accelerator Complex Facility, something at the Slack group. Um, it's definitely worth checking out. It's unbelievable some of the things they have to correct for uh, to do these really precise wow. physics experiments. And this is stuff that doesn't like even make it into the method sections of these papers. Like, Oh, no. <laughs> it's unbelievable to me how complex, you know, we try to boil everything down to these simplistic things. But every time we do a show that I don't know much about and I go to look it up, it's just an amazing amount of complexity involved in science that people take for granted. Yeah, and I mean, we use this uh, in geophysics a lot for calibration for instruments because we know what the solid earth, we can predict the solid earth tide pretty well. Uh, so if we put things like tilt meters out, uh, that's a great calibration signal for us and we get it for free every, yeah, exactly. every day. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, gravity. <laughs> Just yeah. because we don't understand something doesn't mean we can't exploit it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it turns out, actually, it's also uh, used to explain the Earth's natation, which is one of the uh, other like, astronomy word of the week kind of things. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So what's that? I would have said nutation, but whatever. We'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, it comes from Latin for nodding or swaying. Oh, Okay. And so it's actually the, if you're looking at the spin axis of the earth, uh, once again, nobody can see where I'm pointing, uh, but mutation <laughs> is this wobble of the spin axis. And uh, it turns right. out it's due to solid earth tides yanking on us back and forth. And this is even smaller than precession, which is sort of the wobble that we always talk about. So yeah, precession is if you draw the line, uh, the Earth's rotating around its axis. You project that up into space over long periods of time. It draws a big circle. 
Right, exactly. And so these so, little nutations are even tinier. And they are perpendicular to that. So Which, if you draw that circle and then, you know, if you're an illustrator, you say deform and you make the circle <laughs> not drawn by a simple line, but by a squiggly sine wave looking thing, that is notation. Which is caused by this gravity interaction. Right. Of the tides. That's awesome. Okay. So just like anything, when you zoom in even closer, you don't see a straight line. It's this little squiggly line. <laughs> yes. And if you zoom in even closer, who knows? Uh <laughs> exactly. I'm sure there's all kinds of squiggly lines on top of that. But uh, that's awesome. Okay. And so gravity can do all of these really cool things. And uh, the tide, I know you had uh, some article in here about tidal heating, right? Right. So I remember hearing about this last fall because, you know, we always talk about the moon and the composition of the moon. How do we know that it came from Earth and all these things and what's happening on the moon? But whenever I think of tides, this is what I remember hearing about is that a lot of scientists actually think that parts of the moon's mantle, so deep within the moon, are actually still molten. And it's not because the moon hasn't cooled off yet. It's because the gravitational forces that Earth exerts on the moon, this tidal heating keeps the mantle of the moon molten. Fascinating. So this actually is directly tied to tidal locking of the moon then, because this is the Earth tugging on the moon to keep it tidally locked to us. And uh, that happens in a lot of different moons in the solar system. Oh, right, exactly. And so we've talked, um, we as the scientific community talk more and more as we send all these missions out to Saturn and Jupiter about how many of these moons can still be virtually molten completely. I mean, some of the most um, volcanically active parts of our solar system are these moons of these huge gaseous planets because the huge gaseous planet is gravitational pull the tidal uh pull on these moons is so much that it just keeps these moons super hot they can't cool down and form rocks at all that's unbelievable to me to think about that we're pulling on those rocks enough that the moon isn't even a solid piece of rock yeah and i mean so i said tidally locked earlier and i should probably explain that a little bit right uh, so everybody knows that we only see one side of the moon, and we did not see the dark side of the moon until we sent probes there uh, just, you know, decades ago. Right, exactly. And that's stuck there because of gravity. Yeah. And so what happens is the moon is rotating at the exact same rate about its axis that it is going around the Earth, hence why we only see one side. Right. And it, this is because the Earth's pull is influencing that rotation rate. So it turns out if the moon was going a little bit faster, we try to slow it down. If it's going a little bit slower, we try to speed it up. And the moon was rotating, uh, well, we don't know exactly. We think probably fast uh, when it was new. Mm -hmm. And it only took about a thousand years for the moon to become tidally locked to the Earth. That is nothing. No, like, it's... That, it's... That's nothing, geologically speaking, because when did the moon get created, you know, a couple billion years ago. And it just stuck that quickly. And so the folks over at Minute Earth, uh, 
did a really cool video on exactly how title locking works, and it is a lot easier to see their diagrams and me motioning in the air. Uh, <laughs> but it's a really short, great video. <laughs> and so if you're a little bit more curious, uh, it's it's worth taking a quick look at. It'll be in the show notes. Um, and it's also directly related to something that we've mentioned on one of the previous shows, hmm. that we are slowly losing the moon. Because turnabout is fair play in physics, right? So we capture the moon, but it's doing the same thing to us, right? Yeah, so it turns out the moon is actually moving away from us at something like one to two centimeters a year. And we know this because we bounce lasers off of retro reflectors that we left on the surface when we were there with Apollo. Right, exactly. And so just as we're kind of tidally locked to the moon, it tries to tidally lock us, even though it's kind of, you know, the short kid uh, <laughs> trying to punch the, the guy with the long arm, right? <laughs> that's right, exactly. So it's a losing battle trying to do that. But that still is affecting our system overall. Right. So we are actually slowing down a tiny fraction of a second per century. Because uh, we're spending all this energy on the moon, right? Yeah. And so we have this energy has to go somewhere. We're losing the energy. The energy is being transferred to the moon, which is speeding up its orbit. And because of orbital mechanics, the way that all works, if it's going faster, it has to be further away. Right. And this is a one to two centimeters a year. That's pretty significant. It's also pretty amazing we can measure that. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. And when I think about these like mirror reflectors that we've put up there on the moon, all I think about is the mirror reflectors that you use on golf courses to try to find how far away you are from the pin. But it's the same <laughs> sort of idea. <laughs> so not being a golfer, I'm assuming those are retro reflectors? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, so a retroreflector is really just something that if you shoot light at it, it's going to bounce light back towards the source, no matter right. where the source is in relation to the reflector. So it's not like a mirror, a traditional mirror, where angle of incidence is angle that goes out at, right? Right, exactly. So this is exactly how it works in a golf course as well. So you have those little retroreflectors on the pin, and so it doesn't matter where you are, you can always tell your exact distance from it. Hmm. All right, so golfing and surveying and, oh, the, the exactly. little things on bicycles. Oh, that, yep. Yep, mm -hmm. yep, those are retroreflectors. So you probably have <laughs> retroreflectors in your house. Oh, you just never knew the technology that they would be used for. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was an awful lot of information, but it's sort of this really big deal, even if you live in landlocked Oklahoma, Right When these tides are affecting your groundwater tables, they're affecting the actual solid earth mass. It's this thing that happens every day that we don't think about. Yeah. And before we get to move on to everybody's favorite segment, which is a really fun paper today, <laughs> we have something very exciting. What, what is this? What do we have? We have our first audio <gasps> comment. That's right. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. This is so exciting. So Stacy is a listener that left us some audio feedback on field gear. So she's a geologist, and she has an answer to the awful question of where do you put your pencil? All right. So let's hear what Stacy has to say. Hey, guys. Um, I listened to your episode about field equipment, and I've been meaning to call in and share with you something that I use out in the field. Um, I've been a little bit hesitant, though, because I don't actually know what the thing is called. So what it is is 
the little clip that people use a lot to hold like an ID or a name badge. And so one end you'll clip your ID onto and the other end clips onto your clothes and they're connected with a little retractable string so that you can pull your ID away from your hip and use it to show somebody or scan to unlock a door. So what I use this for is I, instead of putting a name badge on it, obviously, I use it to hold my pencil. And it works really well because the in that usually holds your ID, you can just clip that around the pencil and snug it up underneath the clip on a mechanical pencil. And then the other end, you can put on your pocket or your belt or your fanny pack if you're Shannon. And then anytime that you need to write, you can just pull your pencil out, write, and then let go, and it snaps back to your waist. So you never lose it, and it's super handy. And I've seen that there's a couple of different ones. There's a kind that uh, the clip that attaches it to your body is either a slide, so you can slide it in your pocket, and some have a little alligator clasp thing so you can snap it onto your belt instead and I've even seen some that have a carbiner thing so you could hook it through a belt loop or hook it onto your backpack or whatever but I found it to be really helpful and it's kept me from losing a lot of pencils so hopefully you guys and some of your listeners listeners can get some use out of it all right keep up the good work bye all right, so thanks, Stacy, for sending in that comment. I think that's a really great idea of having this kind of retractable badge holder uh, for your pen so you don't lose it in the field because I know that I've left my fair share of pens and pencils around the country. <laughs> Strewn everywhere, that's true. So sort of along the same vein um, on some of our technology, something to write with. John, do you have an update on some technology that we've reviewed so far? Yeah, so a few shows ago, we talked about taking notes on an iPad in our kind of app pick show. And I talked about uh, Penultimate, and we both said that we had the JotScript stylus that we were using to handwrite notes on the iPad. And they upgraded it. (laughs) Right, so it turns out I had had this thing for just a couple of weeks, and I woke up one morning... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> looked at my email and it said announcing the jot script two <laughs> and immediately inside i went no <laughs> see i've had a mine a bit longer but i'm still scorned i'm so jealous so do you have the two now then i do have the two and i will just say the company which is Adonit mm-hmm. uh, that makes this wonderful support i sent them an email and i said hey i just bought this a couple of weeks ago and I really like it, but I would really like the JavaScript 2 better probably <laughs> because I have an iPad Air 2, and that was one of the big things was the JavaScript 2 mm-hmm. works with the, uh, the better screen technology on the iPad Air 2, so it's more precise. And they said, yep, box it up, send it back, we'll oh. ship you the JavaScript 2. I'm so jealous. <laughs> and is it everything you'd hoped it would be? Uh, it's pretty nice. I haven't taken a lot of notes with it yet. It actually just came in yesterday. Oh, okay. Uh, the thing that I am most excited about, though, is it is rechargeable. It has a little base oh, that plugs yeah. into your USB. That makes me super happy because, you know, the regular JavaScript, you've got this little, uh, I don't even remember. Oh, it's a AAA battery, I think. Yeah, it's AAA. to the end of it. And I think the JavaScript 2 is actually thinner, too, because the, the JavaScript kind of, it's fatter than most pens that you would use. Yeah, it's a little bit thinner, and uh, 
it feels a little bit better in the hand, really. The the tip on it is a slightly different material as well. I'm not sure exactly what it's made out of. I wasn't exactly going to do a, a scratch test with it, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably a good idea. Uh, well, I'm eager to see how that goes for you and if I will be investing in that as well, which I probably will be. <laughs> yeah, so I'll have an update uh, in another week or two and let you know how it's going. But if you have any experience with any of these styluses, be sure to let us know. Yes. Uh, all right. So I think it's time before we run too long for everybody's <laughs> favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so this fun paper I was really excited about because it basically affirms everything that I know in life to be true. Well, it doesn't affirm it. It actually counteracts it that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is not 42. Yeah, and this also made me question, uh, this feels like a geophysics problem that we should be doing, you know, solving these finding energy <laughs> things, you know, whatever. This, this is the fundamental, <laughs> the fundamental <laughs> questions that we want to be addressing. Uh, that's right. That's right. So before you guys um, say, what the heck are they talking about? Well, this paper sort of asked one of these fundamental questions, right? Yeah. And so it, everybody that's had a physics class has probably had to solve some form of this problem. And they can thank somebody named Cooper in 1966, <laughs> who published a paper in the American Journal of Physics that asked the question, let's suppose that you drilled straight through the earth along its diameter. So you had this hole and you jumped in. How long would it take you to fall all the way through the earth? And well, what would happen? So if you've solved the problem in the classical way, you have all kinds of assumptions that you make. And then mm -hmm. you, I think generally we say uniform density. I kind of take just an average right. density for the earth. And it turns out that it's 42 minutes to fall through the Earth. Who knew? The answer to life, the universe, and everything. 42. But this paper... <laughs> exactly. So this paper says, well, hold on a second. Maybe it's not 42. Yeah, this, well, maybe we can improve that estimate some. And I found it fascinating looking back kind of through this. There were, let's see, at least two replies to that paper and then he wrote a reply to the replies i mean this is a conversation that happened in the american journal of physics you, about this problem you know paper you know paper is good when it has replies to replies and that means it's got a lot of people thinking one way or the other right yeah and so if you if you do the classical solution you end up getting this really nice oscillator problem where you step in the earth you start falling through it you accelerate until you go through the center and then you start decelerating and you pop out the other side of the earth and just as you get even with the surface you stop and you could step off on the other side of the earth or you could start falling back through and repeat the process and you're this periodic oscillator and eventually you would be damped by air resistance and all that so what this paper did is they took PRIM, which is the Preliminary Earth Reference Model, uh, used in seismology all the time, right, uh, for density structure right. of the Earth, and said, well, what if we don't assume a uniformly dense Earth? Because and, that's a really oversimplification. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's not horrible, but 
we know that the Earth is much denser at the center. And in fact, the core mantle boundary has a greater property contrast than the surface atmosphere boundary. Atmosphere. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's a problem, right? Uh, and <laughs> because of that, it turns out that the gravitational field strength actually increases below the surface for a little bit. And eventually it's at uh, almost 1.1 G. Right. And then it starts then decreasing as you, linearly. As you move away from it. Exactly. And so this corresponds to a couple of seconds difference in this basic assumption, right? Yeah. So I think uh, we get 38 minutes and 11 seconds. And of course, you have a peak velocity somewhere near the center of the Earth at uh, something like eight kilometers a second, which is 30 times faster than a jet aircraft. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So that uh, <laughs> iron core is really going to pull on you <laughs> as you go flying <laughs> through that. So you're really cruising, and uh-huh. it turns out uh, what was really shown here is you don't have to make the uniform density assumption, but you also don't have to make this complicated density structure from Prim. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just say, what if gravity was constant at G? Okay. And it turns out that works almost as well as Prim. It gives you 38 minutes, 0 seconds instead of 38 minutes, 11, 11 seconds. 11 seconds. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, it's interesting, and the reason is, <laughs> this was this was pretty neat. So as you get down to where you know these discontinuities matter, you are going so fast that the time you spend mm. in that area is relatively insignificant. Right, and it matters most when you're where gravity is close to G. Gotcha. So because you're so quickly going by this stronger gravity it sort of counteracts the fact that it's stronger gravity in the first place yeah and so i mean it doesn't really deviate gravity doesn't change uh much from the surface value until i think he says more than halfway towards right. the center uh, right and this 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 surprised me because being a geologist i would assume that you know that these densities would matter a lot and would create a big difference so that outcome actually was kind of surprising to me just thinking about it yeah and the more surprising outcome was if you take a cord so a straight you know intersecting at two points uh between any two places on the earth and jump in that tunnel it takes the same amount of time to fall amount of time i thought that was really neat because i wouldn't have that really does prove that this uniform density is a good assumption and well then you can and he goes through all the numerical methods in this paper it's great uh (laughs) And then you can compute if you want to go between two places on Earth. Um, oh boy, it's it's a word yeah, show I'm, here. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you. Uh, it looks like a paleontology word. Brachis- Brachistochrone. That's where I went. Brachis- okay. Brachistochrone. Mm-hmm. So it's Greek for shortest time. Okay. And so it's the shortest time path, not shortest distance path. Right. Between two points. And you can get, I mean, you know, okay, you would expect kind of this curved path. That right. works fine. But there's a whole separate solution class that actually skirts the core. And it, it's not quite as quick as the direct path, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yes, I thought this was a really cool, um, I mean, even if you're not super into the math, it's actually really eloquently explained in here. Yeah, and this was a beautiful paper. Uh of how to take a problem 
question the assumptions. And I think he even says that. And he says, I'm not suggesting that we change the problems in physics textbooks. They are there to show this harmonic motion. That's great. But this is a great opportunity to discuss the validity of your assumptions when you're solving problems in a classroom. Right, which is wonderful. I mean, there are all kinds of hilarious jokes on the Big Bang Theory about that, right? <laughs> about oh, yeah. how, you know, <laughs> we always have this, like, very set of assumptions that may not approximate the real Earth problem that we're trying to solve. So this is this is sort of a cool way to point that out, I thought. Yeah, and, I mean, Earth science on a scale of number of variables and complexity, uh, it kind of pegs out both of those <laughs> both yes. of those axes. <laughs> yes, it does. So it's kind of cool to say that, well, you know, a lot of these assumptions actually are pretty good. You know, I mean, it's a difference of two minutes. Yeah, and I, I really think he uses a couple different numerical methods, and uh, this might be something that I end up coding up just to reproduce the results because I think I could learn quite a bit by just the process of coding all of these equations in mm -hmm. and playing with some neat visualizations, maybe make some movies of a point traveling through all these different tunnels. Right, exactly. And you can write the word brachistochrone <laughs> over and over. <laughs> <'cause that's laughs> that was a really cool concept. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know, it's a great paper. It's a great example of what you can do when... Uh, you have a crazy idea and a little bit of time on your hands. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it does point out that important thing of assumptions because that can get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that should probably wrap it up. We are going to be long on this show. Sorry about that. <laughs> Tides are really complex, guys. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to send us some feedback, and we really encourage you to do that. We've had some great conversations on Twitter and the different social media outlets, uh, and then now an audio comment. Uh, please do that. Take a second to go into iTunes and rate us or write a review. Tell us how we can make this show better. And Shannon, how can they do that? Well... They can find us on the web, don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And please, please leave us some audio feedback about these words that we are butchering when we're pronouncing them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. If you know how to say them, or even if you don't, but have an attempt. <laughs> Yes, I challenge everyone to come up with brachistochrome <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> All right, you're not going to want to miss next week. We're going to have a special guest, and not only are we going to talk about some interesting geology things, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what it's like to do research and science in a liberal arts setting. Which a lot of people may find themselves. There are a lot of liberal arts colleges, so I'm super excited to talk to our guest. Yep, so you don't want to miss it. Be sure to check it out. And until then, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.